primary reading this morning is from James chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Would you listen now for the word of the Lord? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man and also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither shall a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The word of the Lord. So as a pastor, not a lot of things surprise me when I'm reading the New Testament. I've studied it fairly well, and though I'm always learning more, I can't say that I'm usually shocked. But the epistle of James has been an exception to this. I really had no idea how much James channels his older brother Jesus. Every week, James has directly appropriated the teachings of Jesus in a way that the Apostle Paul, who never met the earthly Jesus, never does. For me, it has given me a sense in this series as if we are almost hearing Jesus teach to us again in a post-resurrection state. 
And so this week, when you listen to James, you can tell that James recalls what his brother taught in Matthew 15. You see, there's this episode where Jesus' disciples get called out by the religious leaders for not washing their hands correctly in compliance with religious ritual cleansing. And the reason for this is that there was a prevailing religious view at the time that was concerned about how people ate and what they ate, and that this could somehow make you unclean, morally problematic in the eyes of God. But Jesus flips the script on this notion and says just the opposite is true. Let's look at verse 17 in Matthew. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. For Jesus, not only what we say is obviously more important than what we eat or what religious traditions we follow, but what we say publicly is actually one of the more reliable indicators of our moral condition internally. James then, has deeply internalized this teaching of Jesus and is now applying it to church communities, especially the leadership of church communities. So let's pick up in James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with a greater strictness. Someone who was recently at Parkside Church came to the new members class uh, and, and he said, uh, I kind of overheard it. He said, I'm not sure why, but after a few weeks of being here, I feel like Colin doesn't really seem to like being up there preaching. Y'all, this passage is primarily why. Growing up in evangelical churches, I was taught that James's warning against pastors was a warning not to teach wrong doctrine. Like the preacher, the teachers have been entrusted with the word of God. We have this sacred responsibility then not to teach something incorrectly. And if I do teach something incorrectly, even by accident, then I get a special punishment by God. So to be totally honest, y'all, I get a lot of anxiety prepping for every Sunday. That hot take series that we do in the summer where we bring in like the 10 guest preachers, that is my favorite time of the year. Coming up here stresses me out. But the reason I have today is different than it used to be. Why? Because James here is actually not as concerned as much with incorrect doctrine as he is with abusive speech. He's not so much worried about pastors exegeting a passage of the Bible incorrectly as he is pastors preaching the Bible harmfully. This comes from the simple reality that teachers and preachers have authority and influence. And whether you have the title or not, how we wield that authority and influence is most often carried by our words. And so even if I'm not terribly worried about translating a Greek word wrong anymore, I am honestly mildly terrified that if I tell you 
That's something I think God wants for your life. And for some reason, you actually believe me and do it, and then it causes harm in your life. I recognize that this would be a failure of my sacred charge as a pastor. Fortunately for me, James has some mercy on me, at least in other parts of my life, verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. Y'all, the call of preaching and teaching, whether you're in the pulpit or you're leading a Bible study, is not conditional on meeting a moral standard of perfection. Thank the Lord. James says we all stumble in many ways. But the highest goal as a follower of Jesus is whether we can control our speech. In fact, the word we translate as perfect here doesn't even mean perfection, but rather it just means maturity. In other words, one of the greatest marks of a mature Christian, meaning it is actually achievable, is how we speak to others. Why? Because words can carry such great power. Let's look at verse three. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James is going to list here three metaphors about the power of our words, which are actually common expressions in the first century. He's not creating new material here. He's borrowing most likely from popular Greek commentators and likely Philo of Alexandria, the Jewish philosopher. And so the goal here is to say what people would already agree with, that though the tongue may be small, it has a disproportionate amount of power to do good or harm. However, in this third metaphor about forest fires, which again was a common expression, he's going to poetically expand on it to make a wider theological point. Verse 6, and the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse the people who are made in the likeness of God. There is an irony. That for all of humanity's ability to subdue the beasts of creation, we cannot subdue the beast that is our own tongue. That we as humans seem so adept at controlling nature, but we cannot control human nature. But there's even a worse irony. The same tongue that I will use to say such beautiful and spiritual things about God will be the same tongue that I use to say ugly, condemning things about the very human beings who are made in the image of God. Right? Like, I'll be here on a Sunday morning 
And I will sing songs and hymns and I will declare my love for Jesus, take communion, say how much I love God. And then I will walk out of here and start speaking ill of the very people who are made in the image of God. And y'all, that's a good day for some people. I know sometimes we don't even make it out of the building before we start speaking negatively of someone. So can our words do good? Yes. But James says they are more likely to do great harm. My sin nature, your sin nature, pulls me into this way of speaking that feels as if it is almost against my will. But my speech not only reveals how captive to sin I am, it also reveals my true feelings. Verse 10. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Again, James must have heard the teachings of his brother at some point because this explanation about the connection between the source of speech comes directly from what Jesus teaches in Matthew 7.16. Jesus says, By the fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear good fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. So according to James and Jesus, not only is my speech one of the more accurate indicators of my moral condition internally, not only is speech evidence of my captivity to sin, but my speech also reveals my true feelings. In other words, it rejects my attempts to take back the hurtful things I, I have said with the casual, oh, I didn't really mean that. James doesn't let us off the hook that easy. No, you did mean that. Y'all, what is in here will always eventually come out here. I can try to bottle it up, deny it, suppress it, but it will come out eventually. And when it does, I can't pretend that I just didn't mean it. The fruit of my words reflect what has been growing in my spirit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. But there's an important nuance here. Just because I said a harmful thing doesn't mean I intended harm. It doesn't mean I'm hateful. Think about it. The fruit of a bad tree doesn't look like the rest of a tree. An apple doesn't look like the roots. They are connected, but they are not identical. So on one hand, 
When I use my words in a harmful way, my response should not be, oh, I just didn't mean it. But on the other hand, it also shouldn't be, oh, I am such a terrible person. Remember, my harmful speech is an indicator of my captivity to sin and something that feels like it is beyond my own willpower. And so this reveals a dysfunctional feeling in my spirit. So psychologically speaking, in this dysfunction, when we can name it, it may be anxiety, it may be fear, it may be despair, it may be trauma, but that is what is manifesting in the harmful speech. So the most emotionally and spiritually mature thing that I can do when I realize that my words have harmed another person is to acknowledge that it is a sin in need of repentance. It is an unjustifiable harm. But then also to do the work to name just what is this bad growth that has been within me. What is the dysfunctional part of my heart that has yielded this kind of tongue, this kind of bad fruit? And when I begin to do that, this is what James starts to call heavenly wisdom. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast or be false for the truth. For it is not wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic For a jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. James here outlines two types of wisdom, earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Now I want to be clear, earthly wisdom is not that self-help TikTok influencer you're seeing on whatever. You don't have to be mad at them, all right? It's certainly not your therapist who's telling you smart things that you need to start doing finally, okay? No, for James, earthly wisdom is the logic and rationale of the systems of this world that dominate. It's empire, tribalism, hyper-individualism, economic exploitation. How do we know? It's the fruit. Earthly wisdom tells on itself because it brings all of us closer to hell on earth. Heavenly wisdom does just the opposite. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If earthly wisdom is known by its bad fruit, then heavenly wisdom is known by its good fruit. Look at some of the descriptions. It's pure, that is, it is not corrupted. It's also peaceable, which in the Jewish context means it brings flourishing. And my favorite for this contentious modern era where everyone has an opinion on everything, it is even open to reason. Some translations are willing to say this is actually willing to change one's mind. Yo, can you imagine that? I received new information and I actually changed my opinion. 
James, James has got some crazy ideas about this world. Still, there may be a concern here that what James is really telling us as mature followers of Jesus is that we should be quiet and passive. That basically to control our speech is to not open our mouths. Well, this may be true for some of us. You might be convicted of that today. However, James is unique in another regard. When he talks about the tongue being like a fire that sets the forest ablaze, James is the only biblical author that references the negative power of words with the metaphor of fire. This is, of course, his primary focus in his corrective, so it makes sense. But when you look at the wider narrative of the Bible, you will find that our words are speech. They do have the power to unleash the fire of hell, as James says, but they also have the power to unleash a different kind of fire. A fire from heaven. After all, on Pentecost, the church was born with tongues of fire above the heads of the first Christians. You see, God's focus on the followers of Jesus is not to silence our speech, but to transform it. In our first reading this morning, a man named Isaiah has this intense realization and revelation about his own sin and the sin of his culture and the goodness of God. Scholars believe that before Isaiah became a prophet, he was most likely an aristocrat in ancient Israel. He had access to wealth and power, and his vantage point was usually looking down on the poor and the oppressed. But in this dream, he realizes that for all his education, for all his influence, he hasn't been using his speech for God's will, but rather corruption. Let's look at the climax of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 4. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in its hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What happens to Isaiah? The fire of heaven touches the lips of Isaiah and takes away his sin. It atones for the corruption that he has been complicit with and speaking in defense of for so long. And yet, when the fire of God touches his mouth, it doesn't silence Isaiah's speech. It transforms him into one of the greatest prophets in the history of Israel. He is sent by God. His speech is transformed from siding with corruption to siding with justice. Friends, when Jesus 
was tried in a corrupt religious court and executed on a cross of imperial power. One of the things that shocked his persecutors the most was his silence. Fulfilling the prophecy that Isaiah himself would make 700 years earlier, that the Savior, though he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Jesus, apart from praying to his heavenly Father, and asking for forgiveness for his killers, went to the cross, went to his death with all the quiet submission. Some of you might fear that God wants of you today. That God would want you to control your speech by not speaking out against the injustice and the oppression or the harms committed against you. And yet Jesus was not silent so that we would be silent. Jesus was silent so that we could speak and speak with the boldness that comes from knowing that God was victorious over the forces of evil that tried to kill God. And this empowerment is universal because on the cross, Jesus atoned not just for one man's sin as was with Isaiah, but the sin of every person so that our lips would be transformed by God's atoning fire, so that the fires of hell could finally be extinguished from our mouths, and so that our tongues would be lit with the fire of heaven to bring heaven to earth. May you receive the wisdom that comes from above. May you receive the wisdom brought to earth by the God who came to earth to live, die, and rise again so that everything might be transformed. Even our words. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, Colin, this struck a chord. This, this sermon struck a chord with a lot of people. We have a Because everybody likes cussing here. Yeah, a ton of questions. I know I do. Um, all right, so if I suppress my bad feelings from coming out of my mouth, they're still in my thoughts. How do I pragmatically go about actually getting the thoughts out of my heart and my head? Yeah, that's a wonderfully like humble question, right? Mm -hmm. Because you could hear this and go, well, I'm really good at just biting my tongue, and therefore I have arrived. But I don't think this is actually what James is getting at, right? Is that he says, uh, I mean, because this is an outflow of your heart. So if you realize you're actually like, well, I'm pretty good at holding it in, but I, you realize it's there, right? This is where Jesus is saying, like, this is the, the diagnostic you're doing on your heart. And so how do you, how do you stop with the bad thoughts, right? Um, this, there's no quick answer. I cannot dignify this question in 60 seconds. Otherwise, life would be very easy, right? Um, but this is a process of one being able to identify the, the bad thoughts. And I, for me, a lot of it, it really comes from a place of being able to identify the root 
uh, cause underneath that? What's the root fear? What's the root anxiety? What's the root insecurity, right? And, and then how those things begin to manifest, kind of like a tree, right? Like in, in your own heart, and then doing the work to come down to the roots, and then often replacing the lies that you may have told about yourself or other people have told about you, and then replacing them what is true that God wants for you or what God says about you or what is true about um, the, the way of how you interact with the world. And that's like replacing that biblical wisdom, that heavenly wisdom, with the wisdom that you may have heard from other people. And so that is a long process. But uh, the short answer is, yeah, keep getting down to the root and invite other people with you on that process. Yeah, that, and it, my therapist and I do that a lot together in session. So I feel like that was an excellent answer, Colin. Well done. Even bad trees can be tended to, fertilized, and with time, even bad trees can bear good fruit. How does today's passage deal with the good shepherd or gardener and their ability to teach one to be better? All right, so great. So one of the big differences that Jesus has between the religious leaders at the time, right, is even as Jesus is talking about good trees uh, and can't make bad fruit, bad trees don't make good fruit. The major distinction is Jesus is saying these things as a diagnostic, not as a judgment. The religious leaders would be like, look, you're good or you're bad. You follow these rules or you don't. And the only way you're going to get better is if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and start being the good religious person that we want you to be. Where Jesus says, hey, once you realize that something's amiss, I, Jesus talks about, I'm the gardener, right? I'm the vine. Like Jesus has all these metaphors of saying, look, I'm going to come to you and actually change you from within that it's not on your own power. And so this is the great thing that when you realize you got to this place of like, oh, okay, yeah, this is not good. I don't want to live like this. I don't want to feel like this. That's the invitation to invite the, the, the master gardener, which is Christ, into your life to begin that process of changing the roots, the soil, the, everything, so that you begin to experience good fruit. Not overnight, but over a, a series of months and years and even decades. Yeah, and I think uh, it's always funny to me whenever you pray for patience and then God gives you a lot of opportunities to be patient. I never pray for patience anymore. Me neither. Me neither. That's how you get stuck behind a horse and buggy in downtown Charleston when you're <laughs> praying for patience. All right. If my speech is evidence of my captivity to sin, does this mean my use of bad words like foul language is that evidence of bad fruit do i need to stop using the f word you were thinking it you were right their words yeah. not mine but like also mine yeah no they, they all had that question all right so um i don't all right this is gonna be slightly controversial you know I'm, I'm down here i'm not in the pulpit all right so i i do not think foul language inherently in and of itself is a a problem of the heart um, I think it is language, and all language has a use. You can use language appropriately, and you can use language inappropriately. I think harsh language can, in some context, actually be appropriate and effective for that context. There are a number of places, both in the Old and New Testaments, where prophets speak in ways that are slightly what we would call foul or inappropriate, but it's particularly, there's a unique context for it. So I'm not as concerned whether you're using the F-bomb as, as you are when are you using it? Why are you using it? Are you directing it towards another human being made in the image of God? Things along those lines, um, rather than the particular word. And some of you all might be like very like, you know, like, oh, wow, he is just so crazy. But you all know me. I don't use a lot of foul language. I'm just truly not that bothered by it. But come have that conversation. I think it's a good question to have. But I really think 
James is more concerned with our, our interpersonal interactions with people, not just the particular word we use when we hit our hand with a, you know, a hammer. Yeah, and there were a ton of other questions that y'all sent in that deserve more than just 10 seconds up here. So there especially, some good ones. yeah, especially the ESV question. I want you to know that I read it, I showed it to Colin, and he is going to really dive deep into that question because it deserves a really thoughtful answer on Facebook Live tomorrow. So make sure everybody tunes in to uh, really get into the meat of a lot of these questions, and feel free to text in more. Cool. Thank you, Sam.